0: listening to experts in their field a podcast from the agricultural science association generously sponsored by dairy gold agri business hello my name is george ramsbottom and i am the president of the agricultural science association in this episode of experts in their field we're joined by amy mckeever from the irish farmers journal amy interviews con lucy an agricultural economist by profession who's had a 40-year career with the Irish Farmers Association. Con talks about his early life in rural Clare, his career with the IFA, and his involvement in some of the policies that have shaped Irish agriculture. We wish Con and his family every success for the future. Um, my name is Amy McKeever. I'm past president of the ASA and I'm delighted to be hosting this month's ASA Experts in Their Field podcast. My guest today is a colleague of mine of old, Con Lucy. Um, by way of a small bit of background, Khan is an agricultural economics graduate from UCD. He started work in the Irish Farmers Association in late 1973, became IFA Chief Economist in 1979 and retired in 2008. During that time, he worked with 10 IFA presidents from TJ Maher to Porek Walsh and three general secretaries. He was involved in the main policy issues of the association over that time, both at home and in Europe. And I'm looking forward to looking back on that career over the next 40 minutes or so. So Con, you are very welcome to the ASA podcast. I think that it is very fitting that a man that was so heavily involved in cap reforms over the years should be the guest on the podcast this month when the deal is done at the time of recording, but we are currently still without the fullness of detail. Perhaps by the time the listeners will hear this, it will all be very clear. So I have given a small bit of background to your career, but can you take us back to the start?
1: Thanks, Amy. Well, I'll start by saying I had no grand career plan. I grew up on a farm in a place called Balnecalli in County Clare, which is about 10 miles southwest of Ennis. I went to secondary school in Ennis CBS, and I think that they were, you know, that they, 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 the teaching of science and maths there were quite strong. And I got a fairly good leaving cert in 1967. Uh, it was my own decision to go to the third level, to go to university to study agricultural science. And I did the first two years in Cork. Uh, at those times, people go do the first two years of ag in either Cork or Galway before going to Dublin to, to do the final two years. And I suppose I, I, mean, I didn't envisage myself probably working in Dublin uh, as such. I probably thought I'd end up in the most likely career at that time, which was a, an agricultural advisor. Anyway, at the end of my second year, I became aware of the option of specialising in economics in the final two years. And it sounded like a good idea to me. But first I had to do a practical year, which I did in Attenborough Ag College, and uh, I met some Galway Ags there also doing practical years, including Michael Miley, who I know. Was a recent interview interviewee for the ASA. He was, yep. <clears throat> now, the the economics specialisation uh, was set up by Professor Seamus Sheehy, who was head of that that department, and the class was limited to six students in any year. Uh, Seamus and some other lecturers uh, there had studied in the US, you know, for postgrad degrees and brought back the modern report on agricultural economics. I might mention just in passing that um, uh, a currently well-known class colleague of mine then was Tom Arnold, who recently chaired the committee which produced the Agri-Food Strategy Report 2030, which has been published recently. I graduated in 1972, the year of the referendum, on joining the EEC. And I mean, even though the that should have been a good environment, the jobs market actually for new graduates in economics was very limited. I mean, it was, after all, a new a new degree. I was fortunate, I suppose, to get a grant to do a master's by research in the AirCourse Institute under Dr. Tom O'Dwyer. Now, Tom moved the commission uh, within within the, the next year uh to, to head up the the dairy division there tom of course is another uh, uh cultural graduate who, who who did his phd in the states so as i said jobs are scarce in fact the first job i applied for was summer 73 uh, that was an ifa which thankfully i got and started working there later that year
0: so so i just I was at that point then kind like we just joined the ec or the eu so for our younger listeners, I suppose, what was happening in farm policy
1: at that, at that time? Well, you know, when we joined the EC in the 1st of January 1973, like it offered a new dawn for farmers and for IFA. You know, only a few years earlier, in 66 to 68, IFA had conducted the Farmers' Rights Campaign, which was both a, both a protest against low farm incomes, and a fight by IFA for recognition as the national body representing farmers. Relations between IFA and the government were very poor. And she said, for the benefit of younger listeners, just want to point out the fundamental problem facing agriculture in the 1960s. And that simply was that our only export market was the UK. But prices in the UK were low as that country operated a cheap food policy Uh, and they subsidised their own farmers by direct payments. Now, in order to support prices for some products in Ireland, uh, the Irish government paid subsidies on some exports to Britain, uh, including butter. But of course, farmers wanted higher prices, but that would have meant higher subsidies, which had to be funded by taxes. Also, of course, farmers wanted to expand production But again, any increase in production would have meant more more cost to the government. So, um, you know, EEC membership offered farmers uh, huge opportunities because it it provided them access to higher priced markets in the EU, which was in in an EU of six when we joined it. And with Britain and Denmark, it became an EU of nine. But also very importantly, The cost of supporting agriculture was moved from the government in Dublin to the EU Common Agricultural Policy budget. So I mean it was a double gain and it was I suppose the the freedom that farmers had been looking forward to for the previous decade at least uh, and uh, things look very good. I suppose also it meant that the, the Irish government and IFA were now very much on the same side of many arguments. Lobbying in, together. In negotiating <laughs> with the EEC, which was went from a very difficult relationship to actually a much more, um, what I would say, cooperative uh, kind of environment. Uh, and in fairness, fairness to YFA, like the organisation had been preparing for the new demands that would come with EC membership. Fundraising had been improved by a voluntary and product sales, known as the European Involvement Fund, um, and a huge amount of work was done by Donald Cashman, who was then vice president and he became president.
0: And that Let, continues That continues, that today. continues to yeah. this day,
1: yeah. Uh, one of the, the big things that happened was that the IFA Brussels office was set up and the then IFA chief economist, Alan Dukes, who of course is a household name to many people, after his long term as, as Minister of Finance later on, amongst other things. And that in the Farm Centre, I was one of five new graduate staff taken on. And in fact, I was the assistant economist under under Lock and Blade. I, I should say, um, you know, that my early impression of IFA as a place to work in my first job was very positive. I felt that staff and volunteer members Worked well together under the leadership of T.J. Maher, who actually was in his second four-year term as president, and Sean Healy, who had been secretary general.
0: How did how, since the foundation? Yeah, how did T.J. get a second? Presidency? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, they, normally the term of president is is four years, but I think two. Uh, there were two particular reasons. One was that. Um, I think in 1971, NFA changed its name to IFA, Irish Farm Association. And that wasn't just because of the EU uh, membership, it also was based on the fact that three smaller organizations, <coughs> excuse me, uh, like the Cork Lindster, Producers, Leinster Producers, and the Commercial and Horticultural Organizations became part of IFA. So it was, in fact, a new organisation. The, the second one, I suppose, was that the the council of of, of NFA felt at the time that with EC membership uh, very likely, uh, you know, it was important to to have uh, continuity in the leadership in the lead up to 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 membership. Yeah. So so that was uh, the the but, reason and in, in fairness of I intake. Mean,
0: it it sounds, it sounds, but the, the 1970s were not easy, though. Like, it, you know what I mean? Entering the EU, there was a lot of hope and that, that things would be better. But there was like the, the 70s were, were as diff- with every decade brought its challenges. But the 70s certainly brought a number of shocks.
1: Indeed, I mean, the the the, uh, the hope for an era of peace and prosperity uh, in farming and in IFA was quickly undermined by three, you know, early shocks which were, like, outside our control. (coughs) The the first one was that, the 1974 oil Crisis, which resulted in rising inflation. And it was compounded with the fact that sterling was very weak in those years. And of course, the Irish Pound was linked to sterling. So our currency was falling, which was adding to the inflation problem. Second, we had a cattle crisis, or a cattle price crisis, in 1974. Nothing think, changes? Particularly for young cattle in the west of Ireland, arising from a combination of well, farmers had increased stock numbers, uh, slaughter capacity in factories was limited, mm-hmm. and we had a, one of these wet summers. And you know, up to that point, hay was still the predominant winter f- feed, winter fodder, particularly in the west of Ireland. Oh, the, the third issue then was. Uh, we had a new government from seventy three, so the seventy four budget brought farmers into the income tax net, and also three capital taxes uh, were introduced. I might elaborate just a little more on each of those, because they were um, they were particularly important and some of them have yeah. had lasting uh, lasting effects. Uh, the oil crisis, followed by the second oil crisis, in seventy nine did long-lasting damage to Irish farming, you know, because it led to an era of high inflation and farmers were victims of the price-cost squeeze. In other words, their, their costs went up in line with Irish inflation, whereas prices of products were fixed by the overall EU in Brussels. Uh, so, uh, the, 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 the cattle crisis was corrected fairly quickly helped by IFA, IFA's campaign to have the so-called green pound devalued. And I should mention that yeah. probably in the mid-70s, the green pound, which of course wouldn't mean anything to, to young people now, but it was, probably was the single biggest policy issue uh, in, in IFA. The green pound referred to the exchange rate for converting from the common EU currency to Irish pounds for agricultural product prices. So green was a reference uh, not to agriculture, not to Ireland. Uh, every country, in fact, had its green currency rate. And of course, the background is that all member states at that time had their own national currencies. In our case, whereas we had the pound, which was linked to sterling. The currencies were floating against each other and uh, didn't have fixed exchange rates. EU support prices were fixed in common currency, called the unit of account. But of course, as sterling it lost its value, and we went with it, monetary taxes, which were called MCAs, were applied to our exports to the European countries, and they went as high as seventeen percent at one stage. I mean, the the idea was essentially that that at least initially that. Um, that farmers wouldn't be given the benefit of the, the decline in currency, which kind of other traders would have would have gained from a lower the, the, the lower value of their currency. <clears throat> the solution sought by IFA and achieved in several steps was the green pound to have the green pound devalued. That's the Irish. The Irish, yeah, the Irish. Uh, this this fixed exchange rate. And that was decided. I mean, that was a, a political decision by the Council of Fire Ministers you know, or nothing to do with central banks or anything like that. And we generally had the support uh, of the government in Ireland for that. In fact, an important breakthrough came when the then Minister of Agriculture, Mark Clinton, declared to the Council of Ministers that Ireland is not an appendage of Britain because the problem was that the UK government were opposed to devaluing their green pound and the powers that be in Brussels didn't want to a separate green rate for Ireland. <clears throat> but anyway, it happened and it happened. I mean, it continued a number of times. So uh, it was a double gain for farmers. There was an increase in support prices, such as intervention prices for beef, for example, and the, the reduction in these monetary taxes. Now, gradually over time, uh, the background changed. Uh, the, The European monetary system uh, came in in 1979, and at that point, Ireland broke the link with sterling. That helped to some extent. And of course, finally, the euro, uh, I mean, changed the whole background uh, from 2002. Now, as regards- Yeah, the tax,
0: yeah, the the third one then, yeah, the tax, the taxes.
1: Yes, um, yeah, tax was a very dominant issue. Uh, like at the IFA Council level, probably for a decade or so from 74 onwards. Now, um, part of the background problem, I suppose, was that farmers were up to then were paying their contribution and taxation through rates on agricultural land. They continued to apply mm. and the income tax came in on top of that. Now, initially, when income tax came in, farmers had the choice Of what was called a notional or multiplier system in the early years. And generally, people with farmers with high incomes, like commercial dairy farmers, opted for the notional system, where those on lower incomes opted for accounts. The result, of course, was that after a few years, it was pretty evident to the rest of society that the tax yield from farmers uh, was low. And that put a lot of pressure on farmers and, uh, you know, uh, pressure to, 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 to collect more income tax from them. The natural system was abolished eventually in 79 and eventually income tax settled down in the early 80s probably when, when um, agricultural rates on land were abolished. And also I think IFA accepted that the account system was the fairest system. Okay. Now, as regards capital taxes, I mean, initially, you know, prior to that, you had debt duties, which were considered very unfair. So three new capital taxes came in, capital gains tax, capital acquisitions tax uh, and wealth tax. Now, the wealth tax was quickly abandoned, but we still have the other two in yeah. place.
0: I think it's one of the things we talk about most regularly on the finance pages in, in Irish Country Living is uh, capital acquisitions
1: and. Capital well, I mean, in terms of succession and inheritance. Yeah, I mean these are v- very important, particularly as you said, the capital acquisition tax, because normally uh, farms are transferred within the family to parents and and uh, to parents from parents to to child. Now, uh, currently, you know there is a good relief uh, in the form of business relief or agricultural relief. Uh, built into the capital acquisition, capital acquisition system, because otherwise, I mean, the, if you were to be taxed on the market value of land, you know, just the 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 the, the, the young farmer just couldn't afford to pay that kind of of tax just um, to start farming. And were
0: they things that IFA would have lobbied for over the <clears> years?
1: In a well, in a big way, yes. Um, trying to get both of them adjusted uh the the capital gains tax as well, but particularly capital acquisitions tax. Mm. Because clearly I mean the the um you know we don't want a situation where people starting out in farming start with a, a huge debt mm. just to meet their 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 um their capital tax liability. And as I said, um like we have ninety percent agricultural relief and business relief applies to businesses as well so it's very important that that's held on to and of course uh, the government recently announced a new commission on taxation so I'm sure IFA will have that issue as a
0: but priority. We, we could talk probably about tax and, and, and we we'll come back to the some of the European um, items that you, you would have been involved with over the years, Con, but like your, your own job. So the day to day work of, of your own job. So, you know, you, you said you were a junior economist. You progressed on then. What was what was the, jo- the yeah. Day job?
1: Yeah. In fact, the most of my career, I was a one it was a one person job, of just myself. But um, the job of economists economist in IFA includes a range of tasks researching the issues of the day, drafting policy papers and submissions, preparing press releases, obviously briefing the president and representing farmers, our IFA at meetings with government departments, uh, and uh, as well as that in Brussels, and of course, reporting to National Council. Now, in the way IFA is structured, where we've got, you know, our, well, I'm not been in obviously now, but where the relatively small number of staff Much of my work involved close collaboration with my fellow staff members who were the experts in various areas like beef and dairy and tax and animal health and whatever. And part of my job would be to to, um, try and coordinate the various policies and also uh, information coming from the the Brussels office and, I suppose as well as, as that kind of management of policy role, obviously working closely with the chief executive or general secretary, uh, the other, I suppose, requirement or expectation of the economist is that, you know, they're expected to have reliable facts and figures mm-hmm.
0: needed to support
1: the case being made yeah. by the association.
0: And where where would you consider to be the most important policy position that you would have had uh, you know being dealt with over the course of your career then can well the, where um where these facts and figures were were scrutinized.
1: Well somebody else um raised this, this question, this this uh this 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 uh, point recently uh with me because a few of us were actually having a bit of a night out to mark a big birthday by seventeenth quite recently so um so 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 anyway they, they that's by way of background, but we have to go back to um, 1983 uh, when the the um, the the milk quarter or the introduction of milk horse in Europe was uh, was the big uh, big threat. Now around that time, Michael Berkeley had started. He was appointed as general secretary, and he decided I think to make the milk course issue an important kind of launch for himself. In his new job uh, in IFA, it was an uh, it was a topic where you know IFA could presumably achieve some tangible benefits for farmers. The background at farming level was that between the time we joined the EC and eighty three or thereabouts, milk production in Ireland had grown by sixty percent. So clearly, I mean, economists would look at that and say, you know, that's the sector where we have a comparative advantage, in other words we have an advantage over other countries in Europe in terms of efficiency. Now IFA accepted that the quota system was necessary in Europe but we were making the case that Ireland needed special recognition of the relatively underdeveloped state of our dairy industry and the reliance of the economy on the milk sector and um, Based on published data, I produced the figure that milk production was nine times more important in Ireland, relative to the overall EU. I think there were about 10 member states in the EU at that stage. Now, that became the central theme of IFA's milk quota campaign of lobbying in Ireland and across Europe. The then Taoiseach, Gareth Fitzgerald, and government, I think bought into our case and took up the the fight in Brussels. Eventually, Ireland did get a special deal when quotas for other member states were fixed. They were fixed at 1981 production level plus 1%, whereas we got a quota based on 83 production plus 4.6%, which kind reflected the normal growth level. And this, I mean, that mightn't seem a lot, but the special deal meant that our quota was 5.4 billion litres rather than 4.4 billion if, if we got the same treatments as everybody else. That was a difference actually of 22 percent. So, I mean, that additional quota continues until the quota system ended around 2014. And I was just looking at some figures recently, and that 2014 prices the output value to farmers of the additional quota is 388 million per year. So, I suppose you that's, know that was an area where I suppose uh, that's a delivery to be uh, proud deliver- of. Well, I mean, it wasn't a, it didn't require. A huge submission it was a question of um, using the data that was there to, to come up with a good case and um, you know that was a good line it was a very good slogan for the ifa banners to be able to say whether at home or abroad that milk was nine times more important in the irish economy mm. uh, than the overall eu so i suppose that's probably the one i would pick out as being you know of, of lasting uh, benefit and, and and widespread benefit
0: you had to lobby for all of those things as well. So as well as drawing up the paper, you would have been sitting across the table and then, you know, out, we went into milk quota then in 1983. and But the 1980s and 1990s, they brought their own challenges again. You know what I mean? It's never plain sailing in agriculture. You know what I mean? There was national economic problems yeah. to contend
1: with. It, it, to it, those, That is true. Yeah, I mean, like there really are two big agendas for IFA to work on. One is the European agenda, uh, which I've touched a a bit on there. The other one is the whole national economy and the the, the management of that. Uh, And I mean, that was important for two reasons in the context of EEC membership. First of all, there was the, 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 the management of the economy in terms of particularly how it affected things like inflation and interest rates because they affect farm incomes the other factor then the national economy is the question of the national exchequer co-funding of many eu schemes uh, because more many of the other than the, the direct price supports all the structural kind of schemes like you know dispense various payments the various premia yeah. uh, grants for farmers investment grants they are virtually all based on a co-financing structure between the EU budget and the national budget. And of course, as I said, interest rates and high inflation are the enemy of, of, of farming as well. Now, in much of the 70s and 80s, the government together with the main employer organizations and the Congress of Trade Unions had national agreements on pay and other major economic issues. Now, the farm organizations were excluded from those at that time, but I mean we made the case that we were victims of someone's lost decisions made where you weren't around the table. Well, weren't around the table, but they actually, you know, where they like where a pay agreement, for example, perpetuated high inflation. Well, then it affected farmers indirectly. So we felt that this was a a very unfair system that really that you could say that the national cake was being divided up between the various interest groups and farmers weren't re- even at the table. So IFA campaigned strongly for inclusion in the in the process and actually following the the um, introduction of the, the, or the election of the Fianna Fáil government in 87, the then Taoiseach Charlie Haughey agreed that the Farm organisations is... A previous should Minister of Agriculture? He was indeed back in the, in the mid 60s. Uh, he agreed to that. So in nineteen eighty nine, the first of these national programmes, uh, three year national programmes called the Programme of National Recovery, was agreed, and we were included in that. And I mean there were there were tangible benefits. Now that social partnership, yeah, so it was known as social partnership. First, that's right. Yeah, now that was in place then for most of the remainder of my working life in IFA. It continued with several other. Uh, Three-year agreements; the last one was signed in two
0: thousand and six. The year I started an IFA call. And very good. <laughs> and and the process not linked. No, it's not. The, the, the process
1: really was finished by the financial crisis in in two thousand and eight, but they they ran up to then. Now, currently, I continue to be involved as a voluntary member of what I consider to be Ireland's preeminent independent think tank called the Institute of International Mm. and European Affairs.
0: They're running good weekly podcasts
1: since the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, everybody. I'm a member of the the group that deals with Brexit and its implications, its implementation. So, I mean, the IEA IEA, service in place for 30 years. IFA was actually a founding sponsor and continues to support the the, the work of the, the... the institute and i'd say to, to members um the website um iiea.com you know if you look at that occasionally it gives a good picture of the work that it does so i mean that has been the the uh, i mean that currently would be my my main uh, interest and uh, you know i would kind of be the 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 agri-food expert on this group i'm on and occasionally i produce um you know a short paper and something or other and they may end up on on the website and i mean there's a huge amount of expertise they are around the table mainly of people uh in retirement as well who are happy to to um contribute to contribute and, and share share their and share their information so so that is i mean been it and uh as i said it's nice it's good to uh at least i'm told it's good to keep the keep the mind active uh, yeah. In retirement anyway.
0: But you weren't quite done and I suppose it, you know, it's difficult not to talk about um when you're talking about a career um in IFA, not to mention um twenty fifteen and your involvement in the in the fallout um there. Um can you give us a, a brief uh, overview of your call back into service in twenty
1: fifteen? Yeah, I mean the background was that in, in late twenty fifteen, both the IFA president, Eddie Downey and General Secretary Pat Spitt resigned within a few days of each other. Now, um, at the suggestion of Brian Barry, who was then acting General Secretary, I was asked by the Executive Council to work on a report on structures, well, the title was Structures Procedures and Certain Remuneration Issues to Improve Governance and Transparency. And I mean, as I face a volunteer organisation, issues such as you know governance and transparency are very, very, very important issues. And I think every organisation, particularly a volunteer organisation, needs to be sure, kind of that they they are uh, operating in a way that 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 stands up, basically to 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 checking. Now, the, my deadline. Uh, further to produce the report was the following council meeting, which was only three weeks later. So it was very tight. And maybe that sometimes is an advantage because you have to focus on the important things and pretty tight when you have to take account of things like legal checking and printing and that. Anyway, I got the job done. Uh, the report was partly accepted by the council. Uh, and, um, and just
0: the council is the
1: is the the, the governing body the, the yeah. governing body of the organization yeah, yeah. and the council the, well it's this we used to call it the national council i think that was called the executive council but um it's the same body anyway and it's made up as we know of representatives from each each county and the chairman of the various national or chairpersons of the various national committees so the council um they set up a structure then from within their own ranks to implement the recommendations. So I mean, I generally was, was pleased. I'm, you know, I'm I'm uh, with, don't sound this as uh, overdoing self praise. Uh, you know, I, I think that I'm satisfied that you know an external consultant wouldn't really have achieved the deadline. And I mean, I had the advantage of knowing the organisation and the people, and that that maybe made it uh, made it possible. So, yeah. so I mean that was um, that was that um, it's a difficult time for the organization. Well, it was, and, and uh, you know, I remember I mean, I think for a week, probably like IFA was on the the top of the news headlines, and generally not for not for good reasons, so that's that's never a, a, a good situation, but at least the opposition, I think did get on top of it. Uh, uh, and that was that. I suppose I, I do conclude uh, Amy by saying that there were there were probably two um two positive and unexpected outcomes for me personally when it was all over. Um as I said, the IFA story was a big media issue and I found I live for example in Rathfarnham Farnham in Dublin, but I found that people who knew me to see tend or or even if down the country tended to come up and say, like I know I know you are now mm-hmm. because generally, I mean, uh, the culture in IFAs that staff yeah. keep a low profile and rightly is the president, is the chief public spokesman, the chairman of the various committees are also uh, spokespersons for their <laughs> particular area. So I think my, my joke, my sum up is that, you know, I got more personal publicity mm-hmm. from three weeks work in retirement than I got thirty-five years in... <laughs> working in IFA, but um, I'm not complaining about that because it's much easier I think to work when you're when you're when you're not in the in the media limelight. And I think it's only fair I think they are, they are, I think farmers want to see their elected leader as the person that appears on television or radio or the national papers uh, for example. I suppose the second uh, little incident was that shortly after the report was published. The Irish Independent carried a favourable article on my report, headed, quotes, uh, speedy brief and clearly written question mark. We need more of Mr. Lucy's report. Well, I I can tell you, Amy, as I mentioned already, having passed the the 70 age landmark, that there won't be any more reports for me. (laughs) So I'll, I'll conclude on that point. And thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Con. Really, um, I think we could we could uh, talk forever, and um, it's always a pleasure to meet with you. And um, uh, you're you're a fountain of knowledge in all things. I think that um, Professor Shihi who taught us both, uh, I think at probably early on in his career and later on in his career, would be um, would be happy to see that um, uh, agricultural economics is still is still as important now as it was then and uh, a very happy birthday on your 70th well, and it's, um you, you, you might think there's no more reports but um i think we'll keep an eye on that um iiea.com website yes. as well to have a look to see what um, else you produce uh, in the future